All right, y'all can have a seat. Kiddos, you can be not dismissed. We are so thankful that once every three months or so, depending on this quirky calendar that we have, we have like five Sundays in a month. And so we take the fifth Sunday, whenever it comes around, and we say, number one, kids volunteers are like miraculous gifts from God, and they need a break for their sanity. Amen. You ever need a break from just being surrounded by children? It can be like a lot on your psychology. So we give them a break every fifth Sunday. And then we also practice and lift up the wonderful thing that is family worship. Kids being beside you. Kids being imperfect beside you. Kids like knowing that they should be listening to the sermon, but being kids and just getting used to it. So, you know, we take fifth Sundays as a blessing, but also as kind of a laboratory. So if fifth Sundays are louder, that's okay. This is a big family and we're getting used to a thing that's going to pay dividends for you and for your kids and for the way that you can disciple them in the long haul. And so we're willing to put up with a little noise for it. So we're glad to do fifth Sundays and it's always kind of fun to, um, to know that you have little ears too, so you can't use all these big words. So you need to be simple. So this week is wipe one tear away from your eye, the last Sunday in our Image Bearer series. And I really just want to leave you with kind of a distilling of what the heart of God is toward um, the vulnerable. We've been looking at the whole Bible during the month of May, and we've been saying the fact that we are made in God's image is a paradigm-shifting thing. Sometimes it can be a thing that we know it, we memorize it, but it loses its power. It loses its, like, push. And so being in God's image changes the way that we love and live with God and other people. And so week one, we looked through the whole Bible and saw a theme of that. And then the three weeks in the middle, we saw three, like, beautiful pictures of how God's image over, kind of overflows in people throughout the Old Testament moving them with compassion and sacrifice toward the orphan, the widow, the vulnerable, the refugee. We see this quartet of the vulnerable singing God's praise as God's people move toward them first in compassion. You say, well, does this person deserve the compassion I'm about to give? And the gospel responds with, well, did you in salvation? And in Romans chapter 5, we see that while we were still enemies of God, God made the first move. And so as we bear the image of that same creator God, we take that first move toward people that are in vulnerable spots. So the big idea of the whole month of May has been no matter who you are, where you're from, or what you've done, whether you don't believe in Christ yet, whether you've believed in him for 35 years, No matter where you find your heart this morning, your story fits into God's big story. And we've been saying, who does God actually say that we are? And how can we live out of the overflow? Not of what we expect God to act toward us. Not of this cold, uncaring, impossible to impress father image that we can build up and then kind of like project onto God. But Because of who God says he is in the scriptures, what does that make us? You remember that corny illustration I had in the very beginning of May about um, this philosopher, Immanuel Kant, uh, taking a walk in the park. And so he sits down and he's just like staring off into middle distance and just like, he's working. His wheels are turning in there, but he just looks like, hey, are you there? Can you see any of this? Are, are, you, are you having like an episode or something? So he's sitting on a park bench on a beautiful day in, in Europe in the summertime for hours, for an unnerving amount of time. <laughs> like, have you had a stroke? And so this police officer comes up to him and says, hey, like, do you need anything? And he's like, this is what I love to do. Slowly smiles, just enough to creep you out. This is my work. I'm working right. I'm clocked in. You can't tell. But me staring off in the middle distance is pondering the big truths of life. This is what philosophers do all day, apparently. So the cop's like, weird. Okay. Makes his rounds, comes back again. 
dude is still staring in the same direction. And he's like the equivalent of, hey, license and registration, please. But it's the 1800s. He says like, sir, who are you anyway? And he's like, good question. That is why I'm sitting here. That is what I'm pondering as a German philosopher in the 19th century. Who am I really? And what is the meaning of existence? And so in the whole month of May, we've been saying, not what does the world say that my existence means, not what does my algorithm say that I need to fit myself into, or my friends, or my parents, but who does God say that I am, and what does God say that my purpose is? Where should I be spending my attention? Where should I be directing my funds? Where should I be spending all my energy? After I get done with a long week worth of work and I'm exhausted and I do have something left over to pour out somewhere. Do I pour it out toward my own entertainment? Do I pour it out toward building a castle for myself at my home? Do I pour it out toward people that may never pay me back? We've been looking at the heart of God all through that. And so this morning, I want to take all those pictures that we've seen, the big overview of scripture, the three beautiful images of what God and his plan looks like, and then I want to bring all of those right down to the feet of Jesus, and I want to read in Matthew 25 some hard teaching, honestly, from the Lord. I know it's like, fifth Sunday, hey kids, this is great, we should talk about like one of the most serious things ever. <laughs> so put your seatbelt on, guys. There's beauty at the end, but sometimes the Lord says tough things to us because he wants us to see beautiful things, and he wants us to get to the next level of obedience with him. So let's go toward Matthew 25. We're going to be reading verses 31 through 46. And as you get there, I basically just want to tell you the big deal right now. So he's talking about, in one of his last big sections of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew, he's talking about the last days. He's talking about eschatology. Have I gotten your attention yet? He's not, but he's not talking about the book of Revelation, necessarily. He's talking about one event mentioned in the book of Revelation, but one event that will happen one day and that causes people to think really long and hard about their lives and how they really relate to him. It's a parable of sheep and goats. And so as we look at this, I basically want you to see that no matter how much you know about God, no matter how good your attendance is around here, I don't know, like I was like a weirdo Sunday school kid and I got these like little inkjet printer certificates that said like perfect attendance like I went to Sunday school all 52 weeks in the year and so I got this cool little thing I don't even know where it is anymore but like the Lord says no matter how fastidious you can be in your attendance or no matter how much you can cram into your brain with theology if you don't have an inclination in your heart to love your neighbor or seek justice for people that are um, suffering or vulnerable, then it should cause you to question the authenticity of your relationship to God. No matter how long we've been walking together even, no matter how long you've been in this room or our sending church's room, no matter how many memories we can pull out from church and religion, if our heart is not moved toward our neighbor in love, we should stop for a minute and take a, take a wellness check. We should see where our hearts really are toward the Lord. And we should listen to what the scripture is saying as it's making sometimes a pretty painful diagnosis of us. So that's the negative way to put it. But the positive way to put it is our main point for this morning. So this is what I want you to remember. A relationship with God always leads to a life that's poured out to serve others. It just does. A relationship with God always, always, always leads to a life that is poured out to serve others. Does that mean that if you didn't spend your whole day yesterday like volunteering with a nonprofit, you're not a Christian? No. 
Does that mean if your heart has been cold for one month, three months, six months, that you have never been a Christian for your whole life? No, obviously not. But it does say that we need to listen to what our actions are telling us about the location of our heart. And we also know that over time, God grows us into the kinds of Christians that he's wanted us to be all along. Amen? Amen. How many of y'all know that we're like not done yet? Yeah? How many of y'all got some embarrassing sides to you? You're like, I'd rather you skip over that part. How many of y'all have things about your Christian life that you'd rather like not put on Facebook and let people like comment about? (laughs) Like there are parts of our lives that God is going to grow slowly. But be honest with yourself. If you've walked with the Lord for years and you see no evidence of what the Lord's about to talk about, let the hard truth really show you something. So Matthew 25, starting in verse 31, here's what Jesus says to his disciples. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. It's what we were singing about just a couple minutes ago. Before him will be gathered all of the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Here's his reasoning, though. This is, the, this is the tough part to understand. This is where we're getting here. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Pretty comprehensive care, right? These people are doing a lot. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we actually see you hungry or, and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king answers, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Here's the tough part. Then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me. You cursed people into the eternal fire that's prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you didn't give me food. I was thirsty and no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. But then they'll answer, same thing. Lord, when did we actually see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? When did we not minister to you, Jesus? And then he'll answer them saying, same thing. Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous are going to go away into eternal life. Tough stuff, right? Way to suck the air out of a room. But the Lord loves us enough to really put this in front of us and really say, are our hearts aligned with what our hands are doing? And is there really a connection between our actions and our beliefs? So three things I wanted to show you as we walk through this passage And as we walk through Isaiah 58, like Dan read, first, doing justice for people, serving your neighbors, is a heart issue. It's not just another thing we're tacking on. Number two, we're going to look at what does biblical justice look like? Because over the last five weeks, you know, it might be easy for you to listen to a series like this and hear justice, 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 hospitality, hospitality, serve, 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 serve. And if we get too far away from definitions, then it's really easy to be confused and maybe like measure yourself against a bad standard and end up feeling condemned in a wrong way. The Lord wants us to repent, but the Lord doesn't want us to carry around inappropriate guilt. So what does actual biblical justice look like? Can we fix everything? No, 
Does God call us to do that? No. There's a, there's a higher, more beautiful calling than weighing down your shoulders with saving the whole world. Jesus already did that. Amen? We're not here to fix everything. We're here to like sing because somebody fixed everything already. That's the good news, right? So what does biblical justice look like? And then number three, how do we even start this stuff? How do we not just like tell good stories and like learn more things and hopefully go back to that thing that we wrote in that book that one day and say, that was a good thing when I heard that thing. How do we actually put this into practice? What keeps us from taking the first step? So we're going to stop at the very end and we're just going to look at Jesus and we're going to say, we can take this first step and we can live lives of justice because of the cross, not because of anything else that we might be doing and not even thinking about doing. Because I get, I get toward doing the right thing with the wrong motive a lot. And I think the point of us getting together is to lift our eyes up to Jesus and get refocused. So we're going to do that at the very end. So let's go back up to the top and say that doing justice is a heart issue. I'll tell you what doing justice is not. It's not like the base model of being a Christian is like coming to church, singing, believing that Jesus died for your sins, being baptized, taking communion, that's like, you know, that's the entry-level model. That's the car that still has the hand cranks for the windows that you can't pay anything more for. Like, somehow brand new U-Hauls don't have power windows. They still have little crank windows. It's not like believing the right thing and going to church is the base model. And being a generous person that does justice is like the sleek, like, heated seats touring edition of Christianity. It's not like you're a super Christian if you decide to do justice. That's not the sort of concept that Jesus is setting up. He's saying that your heart for your neighbor is like a thermometer, not a thermostat, but it's indicative of how you actually feel toward the Lord. So your actions really are reflecting the true condition of your heart because it's hard to just take a look and say, my heart is doing this or this or this. We know that the scriptures say our hearts are deceitful, desperately wicked above all things. And then Jeremiah just says, who can know them? Because it's hard to look directly in and say, my heart is doing this and feeling this and at this level of maturity. So Jesus helps us by saying, our actions can give us some indications. So Jesus in Matthew 25 is describing what judgment day will look like. He says that there will be a literal day it's not a metaphor. This is not just like a story that makes your kids like sit up straight in church. Like there will be a literal day where God will separate saved people from lost people. And he says that when that happens, people's jaws are going to be on the floor. How in the world did that person get on the left side of the room? I saw him every Sunday. I served alongside them all the time. I I'd like carved the turkey and fed it to people just alongside them. How in the world are they in the goat column? He says that the whole point of the parable is that the results of the separation between sheep and goats are shocking. And they're even especially shocking to the people that end up in the goat column, that end up on the not knowing God side. So he'll say to the lost, if you don't love the poor, if you don't love the refugee, if you don't pour your life out for the widow and the orphan, then no matter what you say, you don't love me. No matter what you think you believe, I'm telling you, because I know, you don't actually love me. How can this be? It doesn't make any sense. If we're in a culture where we say, my beliefs are my beliefs, I can choose to believe whatever I want to believe. And if I say that I believe something, somebody should respect me and back off. If we live in that culture, how can we actually comprehend this stuff in a biblical way? And I think what Dan read to us earlier from Isaiah chapter 58 helps us to really understand like how our hearts are interacting in this moment. So I'm going to walk back through a couple of those verses and it's going to inform what Jesus is saying because Jesus is alluding 
in some pretty clear ways to Isaiah chapter 58 when he's doing this teaching. So Isaiah 58 verse 2 says, and basically what's happening is people are fasting in Israel and things aren't happening. Religious people are observing a religious thing like fasting and they're fasting because they desperately do need something from the Lord but it's not happening. So they are fasting. They are asking God for stuff and they think they're checking all the boxes. They think they're living the faithful life. And because their prayers aren't being answered, they learn a hard truth. Verse two describes these people as they fast. It says, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. Seek me daily is referring to temple worship. They're at church every time the doors are open. Any sort of like event that Josh can put on the calendar, boom, you're like busting the door down. You're like, can you like make me one of those key cards? Because I mean, I'll come in here and turn the lights on. I don't care. They're like always here. And they even seem to know about God and they even seem to delight to know his ways too. They really do want to know how to live a moral life. But in spite of all that, God's not answering their prayers. So in verses six through eight, God basically tells them, you think you get me. You think you understand my heart. But you want to know what seeking me looks like? You got to pour yourself out for the vulnerable. Listen to how God redirects Israel's attention. Verse six. Is not this the fast that I choose? He, he ends up saying, like, you're fasting, you want something, but let me tell you what a fast really is, because I don't think you really know. Verse 6 says, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let those oppressed people that were under the yoke go free, and then to go back to the yoke and destroy it. Is it not, is fasting not, to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? Literally, the stranger, the refugee, the Ruth, the Naomi. When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then, when that happens, when you adopt this definition of seeking me, after that, your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing shall spring up speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. That's what they want. They want the Lord's blessing and protection. But the way in which they're seeking him is incompatible. So God's helping them to reconcile their hearts with the truth of his heart. God's saying, take an honest look at whether your heart is really broken for people that are in need for the refugee, the widow, the orphan, the poor. And if you really know me, if you really love me, that heart will be there. Maybe it's not radiating. Maybe you're not like the poster child, but slowly, is there a slow growth of love for those people? And if it doesn't, you don't have the relationship with God that you may think you do. So Jesus in Matthew 25 God and Isaiah chapter 58 are saying that doing justice is not just another thing to add to the list. Thank you, Pastor Tim. Now I know that in addition to singing and learning and all that, I got to go to the homeless shelter every once in a while too. Thank you for the month of May. I will sign up to make a meal for the Reach Shelter. That is not the point. If you're hearing that from what God says about helping the vulnerable you're missing the point. Jesus is saying to the disciples that your whole idea of how to relate to me is off base because Israel and Isaiah, these people in Matthew are coming to God and they're saying, look at what I've done for you. This is how I get into heaven. I've done this and that and I know this and I taught that and because of that, ball's in your court, God. Let me into heaven because of what I've done for you. Our hearts, my heart, can be so transactional. 
you do a thing for somebody because you say, man, once I do that thing, you know, if I really knock that thing out of the park, they're going to be so impressed and then they're going to owe me a favor one day. And the world runs on favors and I'm just going to bank them all up and cash them all out. The Lord says, stop it. That's not how we're going to do this thing. When God responds by saying, my kind of fast is to break the chains of wickedness, we can just say to ourselves, yeah, I got it. Just tell me what to do. I'll get it done. The Lord's point here is that we should listen to our heart for our neighbors, our heart for how we relate to our money, because they're symptomatic of how much we really trust the Lord. How much are we really willing to pour out the blessings that God gives to us? And do we really see those things as blessings? Or do we see them as earned equity that is to be held close to the chest? When our comfort is on the line, how do we handle our money, our dinner table, and our relationships with the people that can't pay us back in a way that shows that our number one love and desire is God. It's easy to do it sometimes, you know, like in November, whenever as a church we come together and it's expected that we're going to serve people through Operation Thanks. And we do a great thing. And we love our neighbors tangibly through Operation Thanks. But in another way, that's like we're giving you a push. Pastor Josh, Pastor Chris, this November probably, we're going to give you a loving push too. How many turkeys? How many turkeys is this group doing? Can we one-up that group for the ultimate purpose of raising a lot of resources to help people that really are in need? That's a good thing. But what Jesus is saying here is that when no one else is looking and when it really would affect your standard of living and your comfort, what comes out of your heart then? And don't sweep it under the rug whenever you see what it is. Allow Jesus to meet you there and offer mercy and offer growth, offer forgiveness. Allow him to meet you there and grow you through that instead of just saying imperfections are a thing to be hidden. So in that way, our heart to do justice and love our neighbor is not an accessory, but it's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Not that works are at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, but that works are proving the authenticity of the faith that we profess. So doing justice is central and a heart issue because the Lord put it there. Number two, since it's so important, let's redefine it. What does biblical justice actually look like? And so we're going to look at a definition from a guy that does theology and then we're going to use the rest of the month of May, the sermons that we've walked through, to kind of like give us a little montage and a little flashback of what biblical justice really looks like. Because we've already seen it over and over, and I just want us to kind of like have one last little like push of beauty and thankfulness through it. Biblical justice, if you're just going to write one word down, write this Hebrew word down, and it's not hard to spell, and you've heard it before. Biblical justice is the word Shalom in the scriptures. Shalom is a loaded word. And there are other words that God uses to describe a life of justice and the kind of world that he's building. But the word shalom is way, way up there whenever it comes to how God wants the world to work. You might already like kind of sort of informally know that the word shalom means peace. You know, like almost like a greeting. Shalom means peace, but, and it does mean peace, but it means something a lot deeper and richer in the context of the Bible than just the word peace. The word shalom means universal flourishing. I don't know if you remember in the very first week of May, we talked about Genesis 1. God built the universe from the ground up, and he built it like a house. He laid the foundation. He framed out the rooms, land, water, sea, sky, earth, space, all of that. And then he fills those rooms with plants, animals, people that flourish. 
And so when we think about shalom, we think about universal flourishing, we think about like that person that is really good at gardening. And you go over to their house and you're like, whoa, like, is there even anywhere to like sit in this room because the plants are like busting out of the windows? That's what flourishing looks like. And like, I know that there's like plant moms in the room, like people that are actually like really excited about plants and flourishing and stuff. But as we think about shalom, we have to remember the Lord wants our universe to be a place full of blessing and full of growth. He doesn't want us to be able to look around and see brokenness and see dead trees and see people that don't have food and see whole sides of town where it's hard to get ahead. He wants us to see a world filled with flourishing and blessing. Shalom, another way to say flourishing, shalom, is the way things ought to be. And it's, it's easy to just get stuck there and say that's idealistic, but the Lord is really putting a picture up there of the way the universe ought to be flourishing in submission to him and saying, we're going there and we're going there in my strength. And as we do justice, we're seeing foretastes by God's grace of how the whole universe will look and feel and how our lived experience will be once it's renewed. So this guy named Neil Plantinga has, you don't have to write that down. I don't even know why I told you. This theologian describes Shalom this way. He says, the biblical theme of Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in equity, fulfillment, and delight. So flourishing, equity, fulfillment, delight, and there's a webbing together that happens. So this is not an illustration that is original to me, and actually I've been really influenced by a guy named Tim Keller that talks about the theme of justice in the Bible, but the way that he describes this webbing together effect is like crocheting. Does any, like, be honest, I guess you don't have to raise your hand, but does anyone like crochet or knit or sew? Wow, some surprising hands in the room. That's awesome. Okay, I'm definitely going to follow up with some people about that. So crocheting, knitting, things like that, like, that's how you make these warm blankets. What if I walked down here to the yarn shop, got some really cool colors, had a really cool idea for a crocheted blanket, came back from the yarn shop, undid all the plastic and everything, and then just like threw all of the materials necessary to make a beautiful blanket on the table. That's a blanket, right? It's all here. Like what? I went to the blanket place and I got all the blanket stuff and there it is. That's how blankets work, right? What's missing from the crocheted blanket? The webbing together of all the materials. The over, under, around, through, the strengthening that comes from the interdependency of all the materials. The added warmth, the added elasticity of it, the added durability of the thing that you can pass down that you used to like, you know, grow up with and now your kids can grow up with it. It's knit together really well and it lasts a long time. And it provides warmth. In the same way, a just world the world the way God wanted it to be, will have webs of interdependency, all flourishing under the kingship of God. And all, not, not some human utopia where we all can take care of one another and we're all completely self-sufficient, but where all of us hold our time and our talent and our resources loosely and where we can help and be sacrificial toward our brothers and sisters in a way that bring God, brings God, bring God's glory and enhances um, flourishing. So there are some examples from this in the month of May of what Shalom looked like for people in the Old Testament. What did Shalom look like for Naomi? Y'all remember Naomi, the mother-in-law of Ruth? You remember all of the suffering that she had and all the, all the basic things about life that just weren't present. And no matter how hard she would have worked, 
she wouldn't have been able to get there. You ever been in a place where you know that it doesn't matter how hard you work or someone that you love, it doesn't matter how hard they would push. They just don't have what it takes to get to where they need to go. And not to get to A+, plus, but to get to roof over your head kind of stuff. How does Naomi experience shalom? Naomi experiences it through the sacrificial, faith-filled, risk-taking initiative of Ruth. What did Ruth say? Same thing Chris Tomlin said in that song, right? Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Like that whole, like, like I trust God so much that I will leave my people and go to a place that doesn't eat the same food as me and that doesn't speak the same language as me. And it's where you're from, but it makes me really uncomfortable but I trust God enough and I, I am stepping out to make sure that you're provided for. I don't just say, God will provide and then like slowly close the door. <laughs> like we're full of faith and we're willing to be an agent of that. We look at our own blessings and we say, how can we share those blessings to see this stuff multiply? So it's not like Ruth was a venture capitalist. Ruth didn't have a whole lot going for her either. How did Ruth experience Shalom at the same time? Her name is not Shalom. Ruth stepped out in faith and said, I believe that God will provide for us and I don't even have what it takes. But the Lord provided and grew this flourishing for her too, right? Where did it come from for Ruth? Boaz, right? What a man, what a man, what a man. Good old Boaz. Like Boaz steps in and says, even though you can't do this for yourself and you can't even get close, I will be, just like the Old Testament picture of God, I will spread my wings over you and act as a redeemer. Don't fear, Ruth, even though if you made a to-do list or like a pros and cons list, like, the pro list is just like a blank piece of paper. <laughs> and then the cons list has everything in it. He says, don't fear. I'm going to be the image of God here. I'm going to step in and spread my wings over you and hold my possessions loosely and take you in, warts and all. How does God provide for Mephibosheth? Like we just saw last week. If you weren't here last week, Mephibosheth was a poor, disabled enemy of the king that deserved to be ethnically cleansed because of a regime change in ancient Israel. And in spite of all that, the Lord moves a child of God, King David, to move first toward Mephibosheth and to offer him provision, protection, and a seat at the table. Not just amnesty, not just like Wick and Snap benefits, but like his last name. And for the rest of his life, he eats at the king's table, even though he couldn't even get there if he got an invite. David provides everything. He not only provides the adoption and the provision, but he even brings him to the blessing. That's what flourishing looks like. That's the idea of doing justice. That's just a little picture of some ways that justice can be done in some situations. And so can you see how each of these folks are selflessly entering into the life of another, sharing these blessings, and doing it not for their own gain, but so that God's name could be made famous, and so that God's children can experience relief and blessing the way that the world should have been. So that's just a little picture of what biblical justice looks like and how people have taken really big, bold, daring steps to show us what biblical justice looks like. So I'll leave you with this, the third point. We can do justice because of the cross. And so I want to tell you, we can do justice not just because I just told you a bunch of stories that might make you feel guilty and like you should be doing more. Let's be real, right? Sometimes church can be a place where people tell you really vivid stories that make you feel guilty and make you want to do more. And you know what? 
That's not how the Lord motivates us. And you know what else? It's not even that effective, to be totally honest. Like, just yesterday, I heard from somebody. I don't think they're in this room. I don't know. They said, Pastor Tim over here just took a training to be a fundraiser for his, for his new ministry and everything. But they didn't call it a fundraising training. They called it a guilt class. <laughs> they're like, watch out, you know. Like, Pastor Tim will get you. He knows how to guilt people, like, professionally. And I'm like, you know what? A lot of preachers do that. A lot of preachers really heap on the guilt and see if action will come out of it. And, you know, that's just not how the Lord works. He does work, don't get me wrong, by drawing us to repentance. He really does work by convicting us of sin and bringing guilt into our lives and bringing us in alignment with what is actually true and right. But I will tell you that from personal experience, guilt is a lousy long-term motivator. It just is. How many of you have ever done something out of guilt for like, I don't know, like five days? <laughs> and then the guilt wears off and then all of a sudden you're just doing the same old thing that you always did? And then you have like some low-key guilt because you didn't really actually like follow through on the thing that the guilt made you do. You have more guilt on top of that, but it still doesn't move you to go back to doing the thing. What I'm saying is guilt doesn't last. Guilt doesn't create lasting change. That's why, you know, like I don't meet all my weight loss guilt's goals because guilt doesn't get you there. And sooner or later, a desire comes that is stronger than the guilt that got you to stop eating Little Debbie cakes. <laughs> sooner or later, you get a desire to eat the Little Debbie cakes that is stronger than the guilt that made you stop. <laughs> so how do we become people that love justice and do justice? How do we become people that are after God's own heart and that our hearts are broken for what breaks God's heart? How do we actually get there and stay there sustainably? I just want to leave you with beauty. I would say in this case, and in so many cases with our walks with God, we can't start by saying, stop it and live out of the overflow of guilt. We do need to stop sinning. We do need to repent and turn away from things. The Bible is full of commands to turn away from stuff. But what's going to motivate you to turn and keep walking? The answer is a beautiful vision of how Jesus has saved us. A beautiful vision of how Jesus actually fulfills this and not only gives us like the ultimate idea of what we should be like, but he actually like pays the price and enables the obedience that we're going to have. So that when we actually do justice, we immediately end up thinking, I didn't do this on my own. I did this because I am so like enamored with how beautiful God's justice is in my own heart. I think that's how you get to long-term walking with God. It's not like, stop it, be like these other people. The thing that actually gets you there is looking at Jesus and saying, I'm so moved that I can't help but do this. So I want to read you to close. I don't normally read long quotes from people. I read a bunch of short quotes from people. That's normally my style. But Tim Keller really shows us how Jesus beautifully embodies justice for us. And if we can look at this, if this can like move our affections for Jesus, then I don't think we're going to have a problem being motivated to do the things God asks us to do. We do for God out of the overflow of being with God. And if we get that backwards, lots of terrible things can happen to us. So here's what Tim Keller says. When Jesus says, if you love the poor, you love me. And when Proverbs says, if you lend to the poor, you lend to me. And when other places in the Old Testament say, when you insult the poor, you're insulting Jesus, what is that saying? It says that overall, God identifies with the poor. He's setting up a comparison and saying, I fit into this box. Well, we tend to think when we hear God identifies with the poor, cool, how nice. 
God empathizes with them. But it goes deeper than that too. Christianity explains, unlike other religions, just how far God went to identify with poor people. When God came to earth in the form of Jesus, he was born in the feed trough. When his parents took him to circumcision, their offering was two pigeons, which was like the minimum acceptable offering at that time. It showed that they were at the lowest rung of the sliding pay scale. Jesus, for his whole life, was essentially homeless. You know the verse where it says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He rode into town on a borrowed donkey, ate his last meal in a rented room, and got buried in a borrowed tomb. He was poor. So when Jesus stands before you and you say, Lord, when did we see you naked, thirsty, as a prisoner? Jesus will be able to say, are you kidding? They cast lots for my garments. I was naked. I cried out in thirst and I was beaten. Jesus Christ literally became one of the oppressed. He literally went under the yoke in punishment. So many of the details of Jesus' trial show that he was the victim of injustice in a governmental sense. And because of all of that, Jesus can say, I, who deserve vindication, got condemned. So you, human beings that are always messing up, who deserve condemnation, you can get justice and pardon. I didn't deserve any of the injustice that I got over and over and over. Vividly in the cross, but systematically throughout my whole life, having an uphill battle, I endured all of this suffering and justice so that you, the undeserving, could get mercy and pardon. When we sing, why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. You know, the, the last half of the verse doesn't say, well, I'm going to try to figure out the answer. <laughs> it says, this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. So when we can overflow with worship toward God for what he's done, then justice flows out just the same. If we try to squeeze our hearts with guilt and with shame culture, then, you know, honestly, number one, it's not going to work for very long. And number two, that's ultimately a self-centered endeavor. If I can do this thing that I know that other people are telling me to do, then God will let me into heaven. This, this can ultimately end up that way. And guilt and shame can end up being self-centered in other ways too. But if we can overflow with worship out of the beauty of the gospel, we can get there. We can obey in lots of areas in our lives that seem insurmountable. If we look at the Lord and we get our eyes off ourselves and we live out of the overflow of that. So as we think about the whole month of May and God's heart for vulnerable people, don't leave here saying, I should just do another thing. Leave here saying, I serve a God who identifies with me and my suffering and with others that have experienced longer, harder suffering than I can imagine. Yet he offers me so much grace. Let, let his heart for the vulnerable move you to worship. And let that, that worship in that next moment where you could be serving, let that worship loosen your hands a little bit over your time. Loosen your hands a bit over that comfort, that extra episode that you could be watching. Let the beauty of the gospel loosen your grip on the things that you might be clinging a little closely to. Let it move you toward obedience in a way that's just gonna bring more worship out of your heart and probably bring another heart into the worship. That's my prayer for all of us. And I know that I don't do this stuff perfectly. My job is to come up here and say, this is how God says we should obey. And I, along with you, strive to obey in that same grace. But I also struggle in the same ways. And God calls my heart to repent of all the times that I'm falling short. 
So if you find yourself this morning saying, I need recalibration in a couple areas, look to the cross. Look to the undeserved grace that we can receive from that. And just give thanks for the fact that his sacrifice fuels our obedience. That's what we do at the table here. We come to the table allowing it to draw us to repentance of things that we've held for long periods of time, of, of apathy and the love of comfort that's gripped our hearts, of interpersonal bitterness that we know we need to resolve. It draws us toward repentance in all those ways, but it draws us through repentance into worship again. God, I can only repent and take this next step because of the sacrifice that I'm experiencing in my senses right now, that I'm literally taking into my body. I can repent because this sacrifice gives me strength. So would you pray with me and prepare your hearts to take communion together? God, we thank you so much for the way that your heart beats for your own glory, for the way your heart is broken for the state of this world right now, for the way that you're in your infinite wisdom bringing the world back into alignment with your heart, bringing flourishing into the world at just the right moment, restoring it in just the right way so that you'll get the maximum amount of praise and worship from your people, from your creation. God, we just stand in awe of the fact that even in our brokenness, our continual rebellion, that you still chose to die for us, that you still chose to give us life and blessing and flourishing in a way that we could have never deserved. God, when we look at the ways that our lives aren't in step with the gospel right now, we ask that you would break our hearts for those places, that you would make them clear to us, that you would make the word clear to us so that we would know exactly how our hearts are out of step and our actions are out of step with the gospel. Would you bring us to confession this morning? Would you bring us to repentance this morning? Would you bring us to reconciliation with the person that sits beside us this morning? knowing that the way that we relate to them might be out of step with the gospel. But when you draw us in to repentance, would you draw us through repentance by this worship that you're fueling, by fixing our eyes on your sacrifice? As we take these elements into our bodies, would you remind us that our obedience and our sanctification is not by our might or our strength? And would you lead us to just boast in the Lord? with renewed strength, Lord. Yeah, prepare our hearts for, for a recalibration and a, another experience of worship. In your name, amen.